The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. Good evening, um, if you have your Bibles with you. Tonight is um, our last foray into the book of Romans, certainly for a while. We've now come to Romans chapter 16, so do turn there, please, in a copy of God's Word. You'll remember the outline of uh, Paul's letter. Uh, We've uh, covered it together in the last four weeks, Romans 1 through 3, the bad news of sin and misery reaching all people, leaving us exposed to the wrath of God. Romans 3 through 4, the good news of God's provision of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be received by faith alone. Romans 5 through 8 begin to spell out the implications of that wonderful good news for the Christian life. We have peace with God. We are united to Christ. We are engaged in a deadly, ongoing combat with sin, and God is at work by the Holy Spirit in the progressive transformation of our hearts and lives in sanctification. Then Romans 9 through 11 deal with the plan of God, uh, purposed in election in eternity and prosecuted in time through the work of global mission to bring that amazing gospel message that Paul has been rehearsing really since chapter 3 to the very ends of the earth. Then Romans 12 through 15, which is really the final major section of the letter that we concluded together last Lord's Day evening, deals with life in the church under the gaze of the watching world. How in light of the gospel, in view of God's mercies, ought we to live, especially considering uh, that we are under scrutiny and bearing testimony to an unbelieving world, to God's marvelous grace in His Son. And now we come to Paul's closing remarks. Romans 1, 1 through 17, you may remember, function like an introduction to the letter. They set out, those verses set out many of the key themes that we have been expounding and Paul has been expanding upon over the course of this last month. And here again in Romans 16, as Paul gives us his conclusion to the letter, much like his introduction, he goes back over and summarizes one more time many of the themes that he has been developing. Three themes in particular need to be mentioned. First, verses 1 through 16 and 21 through 23, we have the theme of gospel partnership. Gospel partnership. We saw last Sunday night, Paul wrote Romans not just to provide a comprehensive overview of Christian doctrine, but to enlist the Roman Christians, as missionary partners with him, as he plans to go on to Spain and to reach the unreached peoples of Spain via Rome. He intends to visit Rome and be sent on his way by them with their support and encouragement. In other words, he wants their partnership for his ongoing gospel mission. And now having given us the theological motivation for mission and exhortations to engage in mission and the message 
by which we reach the world in mission. He sets before us in this opening section of chapter 16 some examples of ordinary Christians who have already been partnering with him on mission. Paul wants us to be gospel partners. That's the first thing. Then the second thing, verses 17 through 20, Paul also wants us to be gospel partisans. That is to say, uh, we are engaged in a spiritual war, and he wants us to be locked in on the gospel. He wants us to be uh, to be partisans, to be uh, one-sided and uh, blinkered in our commitment to the truth, not, not open-minded so that you're blown and tossed by every wind of doctrine. John Stott famously once said that the purpose of an open mind is to close it again on something substantial. And that's what Paul is calling us to in these verses, to, to, to settle our minds on the gospel, and not to be swayed by false teachers or false teaching. So, gospel partnership, gospel partisans. And then, finally, in 25 through 27, Paul wants us to see that this amazing message should generate in the hearts of all who are gripped by it, gospel praise. He erupts in a doxology at the end of his letter, very appropriately, and gives God glory and praise. So there's our outline. Have you got it? Gospel partners, gospel partisans, and gospel praises. Um, you're going to find, I think I've managed really throughout the course of, of January to resist my impulse toward alliteration. But in this final message, the dam sort of burst a little bit. So try not to laugh at me as you see the how many layers deep of alliteration I'm about to go, uh, but there we are. Okay, so before we look at the passage, uh, we need to pray, and then we'll read it, and uh, we'll get stuck in. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we bow before you, and we ask you, please, to give us light, O Lord, uh, to send us the Holy Spirit, to give us clarity and grace, both to understand, but more to receive and rest upon Christ as he is offered in the gospel, to give us joy and peace in believing that gospel, and to mobilize us to go with that gospel across the street and around the world. For Jesus' sake, amen. Uh, Romans 16, let's start at the 17th verse. Verses 1 through 16 give us a long list of greetings, and we'll deal with it together in just a moment. But let's begin at verse 17. This is God's Word. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good 
and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's look at verses 1 through 16 first, uh, as we consider what Paul teaches us about being gospel partners. The first and maybe the most obvious thing to see here is that Paul's own example of being a gospel partner highlights for us the ministry of commendation. These verses ring, don't they, with words of encouragement. Verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, greet Prisca and Aquila, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Mary worked hard for you. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Paul has never been to Rome. And yet, these opening 16 verses tell us he knows a lot of people in the churches there, and he names them. He singles them out for special commendation and encouragement. Back in Romans 12.10, do you remember? He told the Romans, outdo one another in showing honor. Well, here he is modeling that. He celebrates the service and the ministries of gospel partners. Never underestimate the power of encouragement. Never underestimate the power of encouragement. Remember, Paul wants to enlist the Romans as partners with him in his mission. And while we, we mustn't imply that he is manipulating them here by flattery, and I'll say more about flattery in a moment, Paul is shrewd enough to recognize if he wants their partnership, there needs to be trust and mutuality and give and take. And that requires that he let them know that he recognizes the value and the gifts of the people that he hopes to work with. It signals loud and clear that he isn't out to use the Romans, but he really wants to partner with them. He values them, and he lets them know that he values them. Sometimes here at First Church, we get contacted by ministries, missionaries, seeking financial support. We love to support a gospel work around the world. 
And, and on some occasions, some of those ministries will come to speak to us, and talking to them for a while, it becomes clear pretty quickly they are skilled at silver-tongued flattery. They, they, they may actually be doing really good work, and the money that they receive may well be going to very valid kingdom purposes. But when fundraising is such a heavy demand upon us, it can be really easy to become cynical and slick and professional about how you go about it. And uh, sometimes I have to say I bump into people raising funds and that's what they they come across like, well-practiced at pulling the appropriate levers to get the response they're hoping for as they receive funds. That's not at all what Paul is doing here. He is looking to enlist them as missionary partners, but he wants partnership, not just, uh, he doesn't just want to use them and and get access to their resources. He genuinely uh, cares about them, loves them, values them, and he lets them know it. He, He names them, he knows who they are, and he knows their names. Commendation. The second thing to see in this long list of greetings, we can summarize as connection. So, commendation and then connection. There's a real sense as you read it through that these these people really matter to Paul. And they really matter to one another, don't they? There's, There's a profound bond between them. Paul knows them. They know one another. The gospel has made these people into family. In his book, The Greening of America, Charles Reich uh, articulates the experience of many when he writes that, quote, America is one vast, terrifying anti-community. The great organizations to which most people give their working day and the apartments and suburbs to which they return at night are equally places of loneliness and alienation. Protocol, competition, hostility, and fear have replaced the warmth of the circle of affection which might sustain man against a hostile universe. It's a pretty grim picture of life in modern America. And that might be true out there in the world, outside the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But Paul is saying to us, it is not true in here, in the church of the redeemed of the Lord. Here, we're family. The circle of affection that can sustain us against the hostile universe is forged by the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul has been expounding in the chapters of Romans that we've studied together. It makes people one, people who are very different indeed. Phoebe is mentioned first in verse 1. Interestingly, she's called a servant of the church in Kenchrea. The word servant there is sometimes translated elsewhere in the New Testament as deacon or even occasionally as minister. And that has led some people to seize on this one verse and build an entire case for women's ordination from it. See, Phoebe clearly was a deacon or maybe even a minister of the church, despite the fact that the New Testament is abundantly clear uh, to the contrary in several other places. But we need to understand these words sometimes have a formal and technical sense, applied therefore to the ordained 
officers of the church, deacon, elder, minister, apostle. And yet all of those terms are also used in the New Testament informally and generally to describe both the Lord Jesus Christ himself as well as ordinary Christians who are going about the work of service and ministry or who have been sent by the church and are therefore called apostles with a small a. Apostle just means messenger. We might even call them missionary. Um, That's almost certainly the case uh, in verse 7 where Paul uses the word apostle. Do you see it? Uh, where he's commending Andronicus and Junius, the mother, the, the, sorry, excuse me, the husband and wife team, who he says are well known to the apostles. Now, that translation's a little ambiguous. It can also mean that they are themselves, quote, outstanding among the apostles. If that's the correct translation, it implies that Andronicus and Junia are themselves part of the group of apostles among whom they are distinguished for their outstanding service. But the New Testament has two types of apostles. There are the twelve appointed by Christ with Matthias, remember, replacing Judas Iscariot, and then Paul as one untimely born as a thirteenth apostle. They had seen the risen Christ and were commissioned by him to be his spokesman as part of the once-for-all foundation of the church with authority derived from Christ himself. There were, and there can never again be, any other apostles. In that sense, capital A, apostles. Um, But there were apostles of another kind in the New Testament, an informal group called apostles of the churches. We'd call them missionaries, as I said a moment ago. Ordinary people commissioned by the church to go on a specific mission, maybe of mercy or evangelism, sometimes as couriers, delivering letters or even apostolic writings to the churches across the Roman Empire. Philippians 2.25, for example, calls Epaphroditus an apostle of the Philippian congregation whom they had sent to Paul. But even though Phoebe and Junia, their women, Um, and they're given these these, uh, titles. They're not exercising ordained office. Nevertheless, the big point here is that they are being commended highly and fully as equally engaged in gospel work. Of the 26 people named in Paul's list, nine of them are women. And it's not insignificant that the first person Paul commends and the fullest commendation on his list is a woman, Phoebe, is a servant of the church, a patron of many, Paul says, including Paul himself. She may have been a wealthy woman who used her resources to support and provide hospitality for Paul and his team, maybe even for a whole congregation meeting in her home. Notice also in the list, husband and wife teams, Prisca and Aquila elsewhere called Priscilla and Aquila in verse 3 are Paul's fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So one of the congregations that made up the presbytery in Rome met in their house. Paul calls them his fellow laborers who risked their lives, their necks, for his life. 
Interestingly, in the New Testament, whenever they're mentioned, and they're mentioned three other times in the New Testament, Priscilla is always named first. I don't think we should read more into that than it can bear, but it does at least indicate that Paul has no hesitation in acknowledging her prominence. It's hard to resist, I think, speculating that she was maybe the more dynamic and effective partner of that ministry couple. Likewise, Tryphena and Tryphosa, they are uh, uh, two women, maybe sisters. Uh, in verse 12, um, uh, there's a special uh, uh, array of… Paul seems carefully to have selected an array of names from different backgrounds and classes, not just giving special prominence to the ministries of women, but of uh, those whose names are very commonly slave names. We have inscriptions from the period where Ampliatus in verse 8, Urbanus in verse 9, Hermes in verse 14, Philologus and Julia in verse 14, very commonly used of slaves. And yet, by contrast, Aristobulus in verse 10 is the grandson of Herod the Great and a personal friend of the emperor Claudius as was Narcissus in verse 11. Philippians 4.22, that uh, Paul wrote Philippians from Rome uh, later than this, but when Paul wrote Philippians 4.22, he would send greetings back to Philippi, especially from those, listen, who are of Caesar's household. So in the church in Rome, the, the gospel has reached all the way into the imperial family and household, and circle. Into the highest circles of uh, elite Roman society and down into the lowest depths of the Roman underclass. It's made celebrities and slaves, brothers and sisters, men and women, elevated and dignified by gospel service and ministry together. There are husband and wife teams working together in the service of the Lord, as well as single individuals. And all of this, they have been made one by the gospel. It has connected them across ethnic lines. Jews and Gentiles are both here. Prisca and Aquila are Jewish, as are Andronicus and Junius in verse 7, and Herodian in verse 11. But as we've already seen, there are elite Gentile Romans in this list, all of them in the Roman church, in the various congregations of the Roman presbytery. The point I hope you're beginning to see is that the gospel has connected these Roman believers across barriers that ordinarily separate us, across economic and social lines, and brought them together in the most intimate bonds of loving Christian fellowship and mutual ministry. It made them one in Christ, not in some abstract theoretical sense, but practically and visibly and tangibly one. Gospel partnership requires commendation and connection. One more thing to see in this list, gospel partnership demands a cost. It's costly. Ministry should be celebrated. People should be commended for their hard work. Unity should be prized and preserved. But for encouragement to be more than just cheap and trivial uh, pats on the back, it needs to recognize the cost that ministry demands. For unity to be cherished deeply and maintained, 
it needs to recognize that pulling together in the work of the Lord extracts a price from us sometimes. And so notice how often Paul highlights the costly service and the hard work of the people on his list. Do you see it? Prisca and Aquila risked their necks for Paul's life, verse 3. Mary, verse 6, worked hard for you. Andronicus and Junia were in jail along with Paul in verse 7. Tryphena and Tryphosa, whose names mean dainty and delicate, despite their names, have a reputation as workers in the Lord, verse 12. And Persis likewise worked hard in the Lord, even Rufus's mom mothered the mighty Apostle Paul when he needed it in verse 13. The point is, ministry almost always comes at a cost. Paul isn't highlighting the glamour and the romance of ministry, but the challenge of it. There's a cost of time, an emotional investment. There may even, for some, be the cost of life and limb, certainly of reputation. It requires hard work. I read an article about the leadership style of Steve Jobs, uh, the founder of Apple, and uh, the article quoted a Drexel University study into the nature of effective encouragement in leaders. And researchers said this, quote, rather than acting as cheerleaders, giving facile encouragements, leaders might serve their teams better by providing a more sobering description of what they face. Add a boy isn't good enough if you want your team to succeed. We, we do need to celebrate wins and rejoice over ministry successes, but it's interesting to me here, look over the list, don't you think it's interesting that Paul never once mentions outcomes or results or any of the metrics of measurable success that we tend to look for? What Paul celebrates is sacrifice and service and hard work. I think that's only fitting and appropriate when it comes to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, after all, don't you? The kingdom is not to be evaluated by quantifiable metrics. We sometimes talk about the three Bs around here, buildings and bodies and budgets. That's how you know if you're really doing a good job, right? You can tick off the three Bs. I think that would, that would make Paul break out in hives. Now, now, the Scriptures are not entirely indifferent to numbers, and the book of Acts certainly seems to uh, record numbers carefully. But the emphasis of the New Testament falls not on outcomes, but on costly service, on hard work, on diligence and duty cheerfully done. Because in the end, what matters in God's kingdom is likeness to Jesus Christ, not power or influence or prestige. If you want power, influence, and prestige, then you need to go get bigger and be slicker and have those measurable metrics uh, carefully evaluated. But if it's likeness to Christ you're after, that sometimes comes far more slowly, far more painfully, and uh, with very different metrics indeed. So Paul is sober, he's realistic about the costs of ministry, he recognizes honestly what Christian service costs us. So that's the first thing I want you to see here. As Paul talks about gospel partnership, it requires commendation, encouragement. It requires connection. We can't do it on our own. None of us can, not even Paul. 
And it comes at a cost. It's costly. The second thing I want you to see is that Paul calls us to be gospel partisans. He wants us to be wholly committed, monomaniacal in our devotion to the apostolic gospel. Unwavering partisans for the good news. He wants us unwavering as we are locked on to his message, especially since there are false teachers out there seeking to lead us astray. There are, uh, and uh, whether you know it or not, they are predatory by nature. Look at verses 17 through 20. You'll see that in Rome. Now, remember back in chapter 14, Paul was extremely conciliatory towards weaker Christians in Rome who haven't really grasped yet the fullness of the liberties that are theirs in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants the strong at Rome to be patient with them, even though they are erroneous and and, and incorrect in some of their conclusions. Their errors are secondary in nature at best and in no way threaten the gospel itself. But he is much, much less conciliatory when it comes to false teachers, isn't he? Notice three things about the false teachers in these verses, threatening the Roman church, uh, their marks, their motives, and their methods. I told you how deep I was going to go with alliteration. Uh, they're, They're identifying marks, first of all. They cause division. They create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that the Romans have been taught and have believed. These are people to take issues of secondary importance and elevate them to matters of first importance. They force a division in order to create a party, usually with themselves as its leader. And they invent new doctrines that make the Romans stumble, Paul says, that flatly contradict apostolic teaching. So their marks, then their motives, what drives them? Verse 18 What drives them is their own appetites, their greed for power, their need to feed their own egos, their arrogant refusal to receive instruction, their pathological need to win every fight, and their method. Their method is smooth talk and flattery by which they deceive the hearts of the naive. So they're targeting the weak in Rome, those who are poorly taught, whose understanding is immature, whose grasp of Christian truth is still vague and incomplete. And they sound impressive. They are smooth talkers, Paul says. And they do the opposite of what we just saw Paul do in verses 1 through 16, don't they? Paul offers a real uh, dose of genuine and strengthening encouragement for hard work and for suffering gospel partners. But the false teachers, they're not encouragers, they're flatterers. There's all the difference in the world. Beware flatterers. Proverbs 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. They're trying to trip you up. They're trying to catch you out. Flattery is a trap. It is an exaggerated compliment designed to play on your ego to make you feel good in order to manipulate you. It seems like a compliment, 
but its real object is to make you like and trust and admire the flatterer. Flattery, in the end, doesn't really care about you. It is self-serving. Encouragement, on the other hand, is selfless. It's all about you and your welfare and what will build you up. Flattery is about me. If I'm flattering you, I'm trying to make you like me. If I'm encouraging you, I don't care what you think about me. My target is your, your uh, being built up. It's, it's constructive help towards godliness. And we need to know the difference and practice the difference. Flattery is not godly. Well, what should we do with people like that? Paul urges us to do two things, some more, um, some more alliteration, vigilance and victory. Verse 17, watch out for them. Watch out for them. The verb Paul uses means to keep your eye on them. This isn't a warrant for an inquisition. We're not to go looking for trouble or digging around for heresy. Heresy hunters often end up the very problematic people Paul warns us to avoid. There's a temperamental flaw in a heresy hunter, and we need to watch out for them too. That's not what Paul is saying when he says, uh, uh, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. What he's saying is when you know someone is a flatterer, when you see their egotism and their inability to receive correction, when someone insists on dividing the fellowship over secondary matters, in that case, we need to make sure we're not blindsided by them. Don't be fooled. Watch out for them. Make sure you've clocked them. You've got their number. You know what they're about, and you're not being taken in. Be vigilant. The vigilance, of course, has a particular uh, purpose. Verse 17, watch out for them so that you can avoid them he says. Don't be taken in by them. Don't spend your energy on them. And don't let their smooth talk and their flattery ensnare you. Instead, he says, I want you to steer well clear. Steer well clear. And so verse 19, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The flatterer has no such concern. So vigilance, that's the first thing. Uh, but remember while you keep watch, while you remain vigilant in the trenches of spiritual warfare, on guard against error and those who are peddling it, remember, verse 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a, a quotation, isn't it, from Genesis 3.15. He's saying, yes, vigilance, but don't forget the victory that has been won and will be yours. And so he's echoing Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, though the serpent will bruise his heel. He will sink his fangs, as it were, deep into his flesh. It is the first promise of the gospel, Genesis 3.15, fulfilled, of course, in the suffering of our Lord Jesus at the cross, our Redeemer there triumphed over the devil, defeating him once and for all, though it cost him his life. But because of that glorious gospel promise, 
the promise stripped now of all its threat. That promise is one, Paul says, you can apply to yourself, believer in Jesus. You noticed, didn't you, that Romans 16.20 only quotes half of the promise of Genesis 3.15. Only the promise of victory, not the assurance of its terrible cost. Satan shall not bruise your heel because all his venom has been spent already on the cross, exhausted in the Lord Jesus Christ. All that remains now is the promise of God that Christ, having triumphed over Satan, will share his victory with all his people, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan beneath your feet. Incidentally, by framing it this way, Paul is reminding us, isn't he, that back of the errors of the false teachers stands the malice and power of the evil one. We wrestle not ultimately against flesh and blood, not against false teachers, not against worldly opponents of the gospel even, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's why vigilance is necessary, but it should be vigilance without fear if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, because the God of peace will crush Satan beneath your feet. Jesus has triumphed, and we participate in his victory. So the message of Romans makes us into gospel partners. It also should make us gospel partisans, deeply single-mindedly committed to the good news, unwilling to sway from that straight, narrow path, no matter the smooth talk and the flattery of false teachers. We are in a spiritual war zone, but it's a fight we can and will win, not by any strength or courage of ours, but by the victory of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, look at verses 25 through 27. The message of Romans is about generating not just gospel partnerships and making us into gospel partisans, but creating in our hearts gospel praise. Paul ends the book, do you see this? Not with an exhortation, not with a rebuke, not with a warning, not even with a promise of future blessing. He ends it with a summons to worship. This is not a benediction, by the way. This is a doxology. We often confuse the two, sometimes at the end of our church services. A benediction is a word from God to you, a word of promised blessing. A doxology is a word from you to God, ascribing to him praise and glory. This is a doxology, verse 25. Now to him who is able, to the only wise God, verse 27, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul wants us to give God glory. Look again at the text, 25 through 27. Notice why we should adore him and give him glory like this. Four things to see about the gospel that should make your heart sing. Four things to see that should make your heart sing. And then we're done. Number one, the gospel strengthens us. Verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. The gospel makes Christians strong. The gospel does it. Never move from the gospel. Never assume the gospel 
Never take the gospel for granted. Well, you get on with other things. God is able by the gospel to strengthen you. Weak Christian, what do you need to get strong? Not a book telling you, girl, wash your face. Not self-help, not atomic habits, not a life coach. You need the gospel. You need the gospel. You need good news full of grace for weak sinners flowing to you from the wounds of Jesus Christ. Do notice not just the what of the gospel, but the how here as well. Do you see it? The delivery system is part of God's plan for your strengthening through the gospel. Look again at verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. It is a preached gospel that you need. That's the principal means that God has ordained to feed you and encourage you and instruct you and strengthen you. The preaching of the gospel. A Christian that wants to grow strong, remember Paul has talked about the strong and the weak in faith at Rome. If you want to grow strong, you should want all the faithful preaching you can get. Stunted, immature, unhealthy Christians, vulnerable to the temptations of Satan and the allurements of the world and the smooth talk and the flattery of false teachers, they, they work to identify how little preaching they can get away with. But Christians who want to get strong in faith, mature in conviction, Christ-like in character, they want all the preaching of the gospel they can get. So first, the gospel strengthens us. Secondly, the gospel comes from the whole Bible, verses 25 and 26. Isn't it fascinating? The last words of the letter of, Rome, uh, the letter of Paul to the Romans, Paul squeezes in a point about his whole Bible gospel. That actually should be an indicator to us of just how important this point really is. Look how Paul puts it. He's talking about being strengthened according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. But why is the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ the principal means of our strengthening? Because it is, he says, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept hidden, was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all Nations, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a mystery that was revealed by God, though its details were obscure. They were kept hidden for long ages. He's talking about the Old Covenant and the Old Testament Scriptures. All the, the gospel content is there. It's all there. And, and yet it was not there in the clarity that we now enjoy in the light of Christ's coming. These are the prophetic writings which now that the mystery has been at last disclosed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, those prophetic writings become the content. They're the source material of Paul's gospel preaching. The mystery has now been revealed. It was all about Jesus all along, he's saying. It all pointed to him, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Israel, the seed of David, is the child of Mary, our Savior Jesus Christ. And now that it's been disclosed, the prophetic writings that have always spoken 
of him become the text of his preaching and teaching, a whole Bible gospel, a Christ preached from every page across both Testaments will strengthen you because it's rich, full of application laced with all sorts of implications and wisdom all connected and flowing from who Jesus is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. It will show you the the character of God in, in all its glory and beauty. And as the different genres and themes of Scripture are expounded, it will hit you in new ways and stimulate your understanding and awaken your delight with new horizons as they open to you from parts of the Scriptures that you don't know well. And as all of that happens, as the whole Bible is proclaimed, you grow. That's that's God's plan. That's how it's meant to work. You grow. So the gospel strengthens us. The gospel comes from the whole Bible. And thirdly, the gospel is for everyone. Look at the end of verse 26, the preached gospel by which God strengthens us from the whole Bible, he says, has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. God wants the gospel to go to the world. He has commanded that we publish good news to all nations. His objective is to bring about the obedience of faith. That's exactly the same phrase, by the way, he used in chapter 1, verse 5, right at the beginning of the letter. When Paul summarized his message, he said he was made an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That means that the obedience of faith among all nations, here and at the beginning of the letter, is what's called an inclusio. It sort of brackets the whole gospel, the whole letter, excuse me. The whole message is is bracketed by this phrase, the obedience of faith. God commands all people everywhere to believe his gospel. Believing it is the obedience he requires. And all the nations are to be summoned to render to God the obedience to his command to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Romans is meant to make you love the gospel and make you love your Bibles so that you will love the lost and go to the nations with good news for them. The gospel is not yet firing on all cylinders in your life if you can still comfortably keep it to yourself. The gospel is finally about the glory of God, which is what we said a moment ago. This isn't a benediction, it's a doxology. Paul's goal in rehearsing these great gospel facts has formed really the molten heart of the whole letter. It is to make us worship. If when you think about the gospel, you conclude by thinking mostly about yourself and your needs, you have likely distorted the gospel somewhere along the way. Paul, in the letter to the Romans, has been working to turn our gaze really away from ourselves and to rivet our attention upon the Lord. It is, remember Romans 1.1, the gospel of God concerning His Son. Not the gospel of me, or the gospel of you, 
or the gospel of First Presbyterian Church, but the gospel of God. It's about him. The design of God in the gospel is to light the fuse that will make your heart erupt in wonder, love, and praise by showing you God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Paul wants our eyes to be fixed here at the end of his letter, verse 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Romans ends where our response to Romans should begin. With a call to worship, with a summons to praise, with an ascription of glory to God, gospel people engage in partnership, working to commend one another, connect with the whole flock of God, and bear the cost of ministry together. And gospel people are partisans for the good news about Jesus, ready to march into the spiritual combat zone, confident that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet because we know Jesus already has. And gospel people are dedicated to God's praise. The gospel changes the direction of our gaze, doesn't it? When it really gets a hold of you, it changes the direction you're looking. It's meant to make you move through this world looking up. Adoring God, trusting Christ, strengthened by His Spirit through His Holy Word in your heart. May God make us people like that. Gospel partners, gospel partisans, given up to the great, final, and everlasting work of gospel praise. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your Holy Word. We have been racing through the letter to the Romans. It's so full of rich truth that we've only glanced at. So please save us from a superficial response. Instead, we pray that the 30,000-foot view of this letter would nevertheless grip our hearts with growing love for its teaching for your mercy and grace, for you yourself, for all that you've done for us in your Son. Make us, yes, please make us gospel partners and partisans for that gospel and capture our hearts, set us ablaze with praise. We want to be to the praise of your glorious grace. Would you use Romans in the days and weeks and years ahead of us to accomplish that? That's why the Holy Spirit inspired it and gave it to us. We pray by your grace that you might accomplish that work in our lives and in our church for the honor of the name of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.